You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Memorial plans to honor the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg are shaping up for later this week. Uh, Ginsburg was a sharp legal mind on our nation's highest court, who many say is irreplaceable. She touched many lives across the country, and here in Hawaii, those who knew her personally are grieving for our loss and have taken the time to reflect on their memories. One of those was John Gotanda, president of Hawaii Pacific University and former law dean of Villanova University. Ginsburg hired Gotanda early on in his career, and he smiled fondly this morning when we talked to him as he recalled how she overlooked his insecurities as a young law student from Hawaii on his first real job interview. My legal career began with with Justice Ginsburg, literally, as she, she swore me into the Hawaii bar, probably the only person... Uh, to be, be sworn in by her, uh, you know, as a member of Hawaii Bar. And it all started because she hired me uh, as a staff attorney for the for the D.C. Circuit when she was a judge on that court. And it, it's actually a funny story how that came about because I was in my third year of law school and wanted to do a clerkship after graduation, and I managed to get interviews in Pennsylvania, New York, and Washington, D.C. So I went to get my haircut in Hawaii, uh, you know, going to the East Coast. And, and so I went to my, my hair stylist, actually my mother's uh, hair, hair cutter, and I said, I'm going to on these interviews. And he heard I was going to New York. So he said, I have to give you a New York haircut. And I said, uh, no, I'm going to go and interview with, with these judges. I just need a, a professional-looking, normal, clean-cut haircut. He would hear nothing of it. And so he whisked me away from the mirror, cut, 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 voila. You know, I, I came out with a haircut suitable to go clubbing uh, oh, in no. New York, where the front was fine, but the back had three levels of hair, and it looked like he put a bowl over my head and, and at the edge kind of shaved, shaved the back. Uh, it was totally inappropriate for an interview, uh, and so I was horrified. You know, what, what was I going to do? But um, I, my plan was to walk into the interviews with these judges and in their chambers and then kind of back my way out, bowing my way out, maybe. Um, but my, my plan with, uh, with Judge, then Judge Ginsburg, failed uh, because she invited another judge uh, to the interview because it was uh, for a position with, with the Hope Court. Uh, and so they each sat on a side of me, and, and they could clearly see that, that my hair in the back was, was off. Uh, there was no <laughs> hiding, in other words, this haircut. Um, but, you know, RBG, she never, she never gave a hint of, of noticing. And well, when it came to the law, she was all about substance. She grilled me for the entire interview. And in the end, the haircut never came up. It didn't matter. I got, I got the job, and it literally sort of changed, changed my career path in the end. So she didn't hold that bad haircut against you? No, no, she's a very stylish person, <laughs> but but that was not a a, a professional haircut for, for for a job interview. I, it was it's odd, but um, but again, she she focused and is a, has a laser focus when it comes to the law as, as to talking about substance, talking about uh, types of things that that really were were important to her. I, I really learned a lot from working uh, two years at at the DC Circuit. And so, you know, knowing that you had this relationship early on in your career, in your professional career, uh, with this woman who would, you know, really become, you know, this icon there uh, on the Supreme Court, on the high court, what was it like when you heard the news last week? Oh, it was, it was, um, it was, it was devastating. You know, she had played, as I said, such an important role. She not only gave me uh, my first job, but um, she was the reference for me twice and, and helped really launch uh, my, my second third of careers as uh, when I applied uh, to be a lawyer at the law firm of Covington and Burling and one of the nation's leading law firms. She, she served as my reference for that. And then when I applied uh, to be a law professor a number of years later, I think it was like four, four years or five years later, she again you know, graciously agreed to be a reference, and, and at that point, she had been put on the, on the Supreme Court. You know, she took the time out though for to be a reference for me, and I, I, you know, it, it it allowed me really it opened it, so many doors for me to have Justice Ginsburg uh, serve as 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 a reference, and and really you know, the news of, of her passing really was was a tremendous 
Lois. She was just a truly amazing person. And I know there's lots of talk about her replacement and her dying wish to have the next president select the next justice. First and foremost, she's, she's irreplaceable. She really was a, just a, a truly uh, incredible, uh, brilliant lawyer. The, the sharpest mind, uh, legal mind I've ever worked with. It, by far, I think, the most gifted, gifted, incredibly demanding perfectionist. You can see it in, in her work that she put in the time and, and, and care and thought. That I, I think she's irreplaceable. I don't, I don't think anyone you know, will ever be able to, to truly uh, replace Justice Ginsburg. She, she really was a one of a kind in the end. I was struck by the images that I saw on the news this weekend, you know, the flowers and the tributes uh, that were being placed outside the Supreme Court this weekend, you know, in her memory. You know, you had you had uh, women who were bringing their daughters uh, there just to acknowledge, you know, what she's done for women's rights. And she, she really, you know, lived an amazing life, made a difference in the lives of, of so many people. But yet, you know, there was a, a real human side to her, too. You know, she, she was very careful about of her words, very thoughtful. But yet, you know, there was one opportunity I had to argue a case before the, the D.C. Circuit and a panel that included Justice uh, Ginsburg. And I was appointed by the court. They actually asked me to, to do that. And I had done it on another occasion, too. But this panel went out of their way, and I think it, it was because of, of Justice Ginsburg, not only to grow me and keep me up there for, for you know, twice the amount of time that was allotted, uh, but then afterward, you know, they not only gave me the, the experience there of a, of a, of a lifetime, but, but in footnotes, they dropped a, a thank, thanks for doing this and, and an acknowledgement of, of the work that, that I did on, on the case, even though I, I lost in the end. And, and I think it, what that shows is that, that she would go out of her way cause to, to um, when someone does something, to acknowledge the fact that it's important and and the recognition you know, she she took time to recognize others for their contributions too in which i think really is is just extraordinary uh that someone for stature and this is so busy and and doing so many things would would take the time out to do those those types of things it really is it's illustrative of the type of person she was in her later years i know she would come to visit here in the islands and uh really made time for the young lawyers, you know, at the law school. Yes, and I, I think she really did have a fondness for Hawaii. And, you know, I, I did um, speak with her on a number of occasions about Hawaii. And, and I also remember afterward receiving a nice note from her, uh, which I actually have framed uh, after I had left the court. And I had sent her some macadamia nuts and, and uh, coffee. And she was saying how much... Uh, she loved the macadamia nuts, and, and she was drinking the coffee and really enjoying the Kona coffee. So I, I do think that she really did have a fondness uh, for Hawaii in the end. I guess the fact that she was such an inspiration for so mm -hmm. many young legal minds, you know. And, and when you were at Villanova as the law dean, I'm sure you, you, know, you saw just how important that is uh, to encourage uh, those that are uh, getting into this profession. Yes, and, and I also saw it. When she once invited me, uh, she was in in the area. Invited me to go and and see her speak at, at the University uh, of Pennsylvania, where Justice O'Connor was was also on that that panel. And it, it it was amazing the the impact you could just see it in in the audience that that she had uh, and, and that that uh, Justice O'Connor had too on 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 the people. It, it, they were trailblazers, pioneers. You know, and and what they did, and um, as I said, I I think you know we'll, we'll never uh, see another one like her again. I think she was just a, a one of a kind, just an amazing, amazing person. You know, again, she did so much for me. I wouldn't be here uh, where I am today if it, it wasn't for Justice Ginsburg. That was John Gotanda, president of Hawaii Pacific University. Born and raised in Hawaii, he's a graduate of Roosevelt High School, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and the William S. Richardson School of Law, where he was editor-in-chief of the Law Review. He joined us this morning sharing his memories of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
The coronavirus pandemic has taken its toll on all of us, both physically and emotionally. What are some key features to recognize when someone needs professional help? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show when we talk with an expert about mental health and well-being. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center. HPR's Ishii has been tracking the COVID situation at Hilo's Yukio Okutsu's veteran home. Uh, the death count there is up to two dozen. One of several reports was released this weekend, and Kuvei, you're here to talk about that. That's right. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, as you mentioned, 24 of our veterans at the Hilo nursing home have passed. Another uh, more than, in total, we've got more than 100 residents and staff at that facility who have tested positive. Uh, for the virus. So the 16-page report uh, has been expected. This was compiled by the team of infectious disease experts who had gone to Hilo from the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, two weeks ago about uh, to assess the situation. They did a four-hour visit, and they pretty much list their observations. It's very technical in this report of what they saw, and I wanted to give folks, this is really a first glimpse at, you know, what may have happened uh, to uh, start this outbreak and to have kind of had this rapid spread of it throughout the facility. So during the team's visit, uh, they observed residents wandering the halls, some not wearing their masks outside their room, and others with their doors open, potentially allowing that virus in. Avalon Health Systems, the Utah-based company that runs the Hilo Veterans Home, uh, responded in the report to say that this has been a challenge for staff uh, throughout the pandemic there at the, the nursing home. Uh, here's Avalon spokeswoman Allison Griffiths. It's always advisable to keep room doors closed when you have COVID in the building, and that's the baseline that we operate off of. But we also, as a nursing home, residents have certain rights. So our facility staff is very sensitive to that. And mm -hmm. if, an, if a resident expresses to us that they want their door open and you close their door in a normal world, that's a restraint. And so, you know, they found, they faulted us for erring on the side too much of residents' rights. And there's, there is, we did do that. So just, just one glimpse, uh, there are about 35 recommendations in this report um, from the VA team to help improve infection control at the facility. Um, and the VA has since sent a tiger team. So this was uh, on uh, later in the week, this past week, uh, a group of infectious disease experts to help implement those recommendations at uh, the facility. Uh, the VA report doesn't really get into the origin of the spread or how it moved throughout the facility. It's more, as I mentioned, very technical uh, not enough hand sanitizers here, doors open. Um, and so what uh, Griffiths had mentioned actually through contact tracing is that they do know that the first known positive case of COVID happened on uh, August 22nd. It was an asymptomatic staff member that had tested positive, And then from there it grew. Uh, but then later on, they had found out that a resident who had gone to an outside dia dialysis appointment might have also brought uh, in the virus. Uh, but actually now what we're learning is that the outbreak uh, may have even entered the facility two or three weeks prior uh, to that first tested positive case. And that's something that, you know, you're not going to find in this VA report is, is what happened there. Now, Larry Geller, uh, the current board member and past president for the Kokua Council uh, for Senior Citizens, he says he's, he's grateful for the report because it's really the first or really all we have in explaining what happened at the Yukio Okutsu State Veterans Home. Uh, but he says it does raise uh, more questions uh, than answers, especially when it comes to the guidance that was given to the nursing home to deal with these situations. Here's Geller. The uh, national outbreaks and the risk to Hawaii, not just, by the way, the risk to the residents, but the risk to the population as the staff 
uh, takes the virus out of the facilities and into the general population. We don't know what guidance was provided to them, if any. And in my mind, there should have been a flock of sudden unannounced inspections to make sure that the guidance is being followed. So another question that was brought up uh, in the report is really the idea of timing. When were, so this, the VA team had visited, uh, had conducted this on-site assessment about three weeks into the outbreak. And so uh, an observation by the team actually mentions in the report that uh, many of the practices seem to have been a result of recent changes and could have been, if they weren't in place uh, at the onset of the pandemic, could have been a major contributing factor to the rapid spread. It's been hard uh, for us to get uh, the VA, actually we reached out to the VA team lead, uh, nurse executive during summers to give us an idea uh, of what, you know, to elaborate on what that exactly was, but uh, that request was rerouted to uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. So we're hoping to hear from them to see exactly, you know, if we could get specifics on what it is that could have caused this. Um, but uh, Alison Griffiths, the spokes Avalon spokeswoman, had mentioned that 60%, and this is written in the report, 60% of the recommendations that the VA team had come up with were already in place prior to the visit, and, and what we know is that during that four-hour visit, the team wasn't able to look, uh, review the, the facility's pandemic plan. They didn't go over training records to see if staff, how and if staff were trained to do, you know, specific um, COVID-related uh, risk mitigation training. Uh, but so th those sort of, uh, this timing of, of the report, but also implementation of new practices is sort of fuzzy when you look at, at what we have here. Uh, Avalon spokeswoman Allison Griffiths uh, did agree with uh, Gellers in, in this concern over the guidance that they have been provided. And Griffiths says that the, um, the recommendations, many of the recommendations in the report actually go above and beyond what is um, what has been codified by the CDC and the Centers for Medicaid and uh, Medicare Services when it comes to running a nursing home under COVID. And um, here's Griffiths to kind of explain uh, her case there. Um, again, those are the guidelines that all nursing homes are or should be following, and that's what we were doing. And, um, you know, a portion of what's contained in the report goes above and beyond that guidance and had not been previously provided to us or other nursing homes um, as rules or guidance or crisis strategies. So, you know, if the spread in the facility can be contributed to a failure to follow guidance that we hadn't previously been provided, then I think that's problematic. So this VA report uh, is just one of three sort of known inspections conducted by various government agencies at the facility. Uh, a separate inspection report is uh, due. We're expecting to have it uh, released to the public today by the Department of Health, who had conducted a, an unannounced inspection of the facility uh, two weeks ago as well. And I know you were reaching out to uh, Mayor Harry Kim, because I know when we had talked with him, yes. he was concerned <laughs> about, you know, the VA uh, coming in initially, and he'd, I think, gone through the, some of the channels with the state to get someone to look at what was going on in there. He was under the impression that the report was going to come out pretty quick, but he did get briefed uh, early he on. Did. Right? He did. So he received um, a, a copy of the report uh, as soon as Sunday, so two days after the initial on-site assessment. But it was uh, my understanding from speaking to Haima and also Mayor Kim was that that report was uh, being reviewed by Incident Commander Hara at Haima, uh, to consider whether or not uh, to make that public, and we finally got that on Friday. It'd be interesting to see, you know, because I know they uh, talked about how staff moved around in the facility, you know, and right. didn't isolate, um, you know, staff in one particular area, so that might have contributed to That's right. the, the virus. That's right. One spread. of the, the most immediate changes that were done uh, was the installation of these sort of zipper walls uh, to separate COVID-positive people uh, patients uh, from the, you know, from the workers and then having a room for nurses actually to take off and put on their gowns and things like that to make sure that it's not spreading around. And the same thing, so two stories, downstairs they've got COVID positive patients in the COVID unit and then upstairs they've got 
uh, the negative recovered and um, the persons under investigation and again all separated by this uh, new zipper wall insulation. Interesting yeah all right well we'll see uh, what else comes out but thanks so much. Thanks. That was Ishi, and we will have more on the Veterans Home Report in reaction to that VA report uh, up next on our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats Kevin Dayton joins us from Hilo this morning with our reality check. And Kevin, uh, your story today uh, talks about Senator Brian Schatz's response to this VA report. Hi, Catherine. Yes, it does. Uh, Senator Schatz uh, put out a statement uh, yesterday uh, after the publication um, of the of the uh, portion of the inspection report, uh, basically saying that he was uh, the the way he worded it was that Avalon did not take the steps necessary to protect its residents and staff. And he makes the point that uh, we've known all along that nursing homes and their residents were very vulnerable to COVID and said, uh, and this is a quote, it's infuriating to see that basic inspection control practices <clears throat> were not in place months after the pandemic began. Yeah, I, I know that there were calls by uh, the senior advocates, you know, we need to have a rapid response team. Uh, we need to, you know, uh, make sure that we've got safeguards in place because we're watching across the the country and the world to see how it's just devastated uh homes where uh, the the frail and the elderly uh, are housed so uh yeah i i can see you know uh, senator shots coming out with this i, I believe it was uh, nick ruby a uh, reporter who's based there in dc who, who had talked to shots about his concerns and and you know he was worried that, that we weren't moving fast enough here on the local level. That's correct. And, and, and of course, it's Senator Schatz also that, that asked the Department of Veterans Affairs to send a team to Hawaii to support uh, the activities at the Okutsu uh, Veterans Home. Um, the logic being that, that, that obviously they needed some kind of backup or support because the, the, the spread was just so rapid. Um, and, you know, just to recap a couple of the numbers, um, uh, you know, as best we know at this point, there have been 69 residents who tested positive. 23 have recovered, but 23 have died. And uh, 32 of the 143 staff members tested positive. So we're talking about a very widespread um, infection rate uh, within that facility. And there are a number of eyes on this facility. Uh, I think Kuve, he had mentioned that, you know, we're waiting for another report to come up maybe today. Yeah, I think one of the, the sort of intriguing things about the announcement that came out on Friday, the release of the documents on Friday, was it was not the state government who released uh, the inspection report uh, that was led by uh, Veterans Administration and some folks from Tripler uh, and, and from the VA. It was actually Avalon that released that report, and they did it in an interesting way. They released the report uh, with accompanying rebuttal, line-by-line -line rebuttal, almost, almost line-by-line, in which they basically made their case for um, them doing the right thing under very difficult circumstances. It, it's intriguing that there have been all these um, inspections that have been done of the facility, you know, which is in an obvious crisis, and yet the state government has yet to put out any reports, any of the reports that have been generated from the inspections. Instead, we have to hear what's taking place in that facility from Avalon, who is the operator, with an obvious interest in, in maintaining control of the flow of information. It's just a really intriguing that the state government is choosing to do business that way. Yeah, and you kind of have to wonder, because if, uh, you know, Schatz was critical of the state not moving fast enough, here we've had, you know, these inspectors go in and, and we're still waiting for, for the reports. And then, meanwhile, the death count just goes up. Absolutely, and I think everybody, as, as Kovehi mentioned, uh, I think everybody's waiting for that um, Office of Healthcare Assurance and the inspection that they did. They were in the facility from September 9th to 10th with a follow-up on September 14th. We still want to hear 
uh, what they found when they were going through the facility. The report that we've re we recently received some information because Avalon gave it to us, that report was based on an inspection on September 11th. So apparently it's possible to pull together a report that fast and get it out to the public. Yeah, when you have the other side, you know, rebut, I guess it reminds me of the legislative audits, right? You, you, you've got a, a critical report by investigators, but yet the agency has a chance to, uh, to explain itself. And, Which yeah. I think I think all of us would say that that's totally appropriate, that, that Avalon should have a chance to explain itself. But it's Avalon who's giving out the information because no one else is doing it. Yeah, so I, I wonder uh, uh, if we're going to see any progress in the transparency and the speed of which uh, the public gets told about what's going on. I, th I think when you have 22 deaths in a single facility um, under these circumstances, and, and I don't think anybody doubts that there could very well be additional deaths. I hope not. Um, but the risk is very real. Um, I think state government needs to be talking to the public. And uh, anything else that, that you're hearing, uh, you know, with the county? Uh, I know Kuve, he was trying to, you know, reach uh, Mayor Kim this morning, but was uh, unsuccessful uh, in getting any new updates today. But... You know, I, I, I would be interested, and, and we had posed the question to Senator Schatz. You know, as you know, uh, Harry Kim had called for Avalon to be removed as the, as the operator of the care home. That was more than a week ago. And we posed the question to Senator Schatz, does he agree? You know, are there serious problems with Avalon's performance? We haven't heard back yet uh, about that inquiry, but I hope he, I hope he steps up and, and says what he thinks in terms of, of whether the, the management of the facility has been appropriate. Well, uh, I know that uh, we have always uh, looked to our senior senator, Dan Inouye, to, uh, you know, step in. Uh, and I know there's been some reluctance by our congressional folks to kind of hold back, you know, to see uh, what our local leaders are doing. But uh, Schatz obviously felt a need to step up and say something. Absolutely. And to his credit, you know, he's, he, again, the, the, the person who has, you know, sounded the alarm perhaps earliest and um, with the most resolve in terms of bringing the VA in try to get them to help and to deal with the situation. So I don't mean to be critical, but, um, I, you know, I think it is a, a, a fair question and something that people may want to know, which is, you know, you know, does, based on the information that he has, is it appropriate to replace Avalon um, in the near future? I mean, I can understand in the middle of a crisis, maybe you don't want to pull, pull the plug on a contractor, but, um, you know, what is the right way forward? What's, what's the right way to handle this going forward? All right. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Take care. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Uh, head to civilbeat.org to read his story. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Here on Hawaii Public Radio, we strive to bring you the best of both worlds. We keep you informed and entertained with national programs like Marketplace and Fresh Air, and we also keep you connected to our community with our local shows like The Body Show, Bite Marks Cafe, and Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our programming is hosted by HPR's own staff. To learn more about all of our programs, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. It's high stakes on the Hamakua Coast, the fate of a $400 million investment into a green energy project for the Big Island's remote coast hangs in the balance. Lawyers for the company are back before the Hawaii Supreme Court after the Public Utilities Commission declined to hear a motion to reconsider its case. Uh, we talked to Warren Lee, CEO of Honua Ola Bioenergy, also known as Hu Honua, this morning about its request for the court to intervene. This plant is very important, first of all. Not its jobs, its economy economic growth for Hamakua Coast and for the island of Hawaii. Uh, more importantly, it's uh, also renewable, firm energy. And this plant is, I would say, 99.1, 99.2% complete construction-wise. We just need to um, 
have a purchase bar agreement so we can go through the commissioning and start up the unit and uh, provide firm energy, renewable energy to the Big Island, to the Helco grid. And uh, I think that's important from the standpoint of uh, minimizing or eliminating or minimizing greenhouse gas emissions yeah, globally, especially since that's a state mandate that by 2045 we should be off of fossil fuel for, for power generation. So that's why this project is important, and that's why, based on previous guidance and orders from the Public Utilities Commission, two times on the purchase power agreement, you know, we moved forward with uh, completing this project, and we're 99.1, 99.2% complete at this point, construction-wise. Now, the plan was to burn eucalyptus and albizia trees, correct? Well, it's, uh, the plan is the primary feedstock is eucalyptus, but we also have provisions to uh, utilize invasive species such as albizia. It could also be, you know, gunpowder, could be strawberry guava, could be gorse, all those invasive species that are harming the, uh, the landscape on the island of Hawaii. So, yes, uh, we will also be uh, utilizing uh, invasive species like albizia and others. Now, there are folks who say that, you know, this project, you know, maybe isn't perfect. You know, there were concerns about the pricing structure. Honolulu Civil Beat has an uh, article today that was written by Ian Lynn about uh, concerns over the financial commitment of investors uh, and, and a lawsuit that was filed uh, previously. Uh, how do you address those concerns about not having all the ducks in the row before the end of the year? Well, I think the ducks are in a row, except for the... Uh Moving forward with the purchase power agreement, the ownership, current ownership, has committed to, to uh, complete this project, and that's why we're 99.1, 99.2% complete construction-wise. If they were not committed to it, uh, we would not be at this point. So it's their commitment uh, to complete this plan. Uh, They're committed to providing jobs where we've been training uh, operators, power plant operators, and maintenance personnel for over, what, going on two years. So I think that uh, pretty shows a pretty strong commitment to completing this project. So I'm not sure what the, uh, what the article says or what's the uh, implications or what they're trying to insinuate. Well, is it realistic that you'll get a purchase a power agreement before the end of the year? I mean, even if the, the Supreme Court does reverse this case? I think it's possible, especially if the Supreme Court says uh, to the Public Utilities Commission that we want you to expedite the hearings. You know, they ruled in uh, the Supreme Court remanded case back to the uh, the project, back to the PUC back in uh, oh early 2019. And, you know, the direction was to complete a greenhouse gas analysis so that life of the land participate as fully as possible. And uh, let's move on. That's the way we took it. And we, the PUC actually conducted or uh, came out with a schedule for pre-evidentiary hearing requirements, and uh, we did all of that. Helco did all of that, uh, went through the interrogatory processes, and then all of a sudden they, uh, they pulled the plug on saying, we're not going to consider this anymore because we're denying your waiver. So uh, in that sense, it's uh, really unfair, uh, basically, to say. And we should note that this is a different Public Utilities Commission. The members are different from uh, the two previous go-arounds. Definitely, maybe from the first go-around, but the second go-around, the current chair was a member of the commission, and I think since then you've had turnover. The project is still a project, you know. It hasn't changed. And this was a project that Governor David Ige supported uh, when he began his term, uh, you know, I think uh, underscoring just the need for uh, a project like this in order to meet our green energy goals, you know, and provide diversity. He certainly did in his inauguration speech, and he mentioned Honua, Huhunua Bioenergy, now known as, also known as Honua Ola Bioenergy. I mean, I think he mentioned that in his inauguration address specifically. Any thoughts on what happens if the Supreme Court goes against you at this round? Well, we filed for a writ of mandamus, and we hope that uh, we'll be hearing within, hopefully within a month's time. But we've also filed a notice of appeal. Uh, which is a longer process, I guess. You know, if you listen to the attorneys. So, you know, we're not, we're still hopeful that the uh, writ of mandamus will be allowed. 
uh, as we filed it, then we can move on with the evidentiary hearings and bring out all the facts uh, that are and, and the issues that are of concern to the uh, Public Utilities Commission, Consumer Advocate, and others. Uh, anything else that you want to underscore, just given the unusual situation that we're in with this pandemic and our economic crisis that we're grappling with? You know, this project has always been from 2008 when the uh, owners of the uh, facility came into the utility to talk about uh, a new purchase power agreement. Uh, this was back in 2008, resulted in a purchase power agreement with the waiver from a competitive bidding in 2013 and uh, revalidated in 2017. And uh, the whole intent was that this will bring uh, on the grid for the Hawaii Electric Light Company firm 24-7 renewable energy that is uh, sustainable. Uh, It'll bring jobs to the Big Island uh, for for the power plant operations, maintenance, and contractors. And it also... um, give a boost to the um, agricultural sector uh, for economic development uh, and making the uh, forest industry robust as it was imagined back in 1994 after sugar went out of business. And, you know, this, the Hamakua Coast and portions of the Big Island, uh, Kau was just devastated with the loss of thousands of jobs. So the eucalyptus was uh, something that was thought of as experimental plots planted. And this was the... Uh, a crop of choice, and uh, you know it's going to not only bring help contractors, but it also help the forest industry as a whole. And it also could relate to other agricultural businesses. That when you tie that in with the forestry side, uh, it just makes sense. And the greenhouse gas issue. The greenhouse gas issue, we addressed that for the PUC uh, requirements. Uh, we addressed it uh, in detail. Uh, Nua Bioenergy and also Hawaii Electric Line Company or Hawaiian Electric also filed their greenhouse gas and uh, report, and uh, it's done. I mean, you know, I mean, if there's any questions, I mean, this is where the evidentiary hearings uh, would bear out the facts and what is the plan. So this has been addressed per the remand from the state, Hawaii State Supreme Court as to why the uh, Public Utilities Commission doesn't want to address it as remanded through the evidentiary hearings is, uh, at this point, you know, just unfair. That was Warren Lee of Huhanua, also known as Honua Ola Bioenergy, talking about the latest legal request for the Hawaii Supreme Court. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to HBR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips, who tell us more about the incredible discovery of possible life on Venus. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, and we welcome him back right now. Hey, Chris, what's in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn can still be seen in the southern eastern sky after sunset. Venus will also still be visible in the east before dawn. The moon this week is approaching its first quarter phase, which means conditions for stargazing will still be great. And you mentioned Venus. Obviously, that's the big story at the moment. Right. So last week saw the incredible discovery of molecules called phosphine on the planet Venus, made by an international team of astronomers led by Cardiff University in the UK and using the James Clark Maxwell Telescope atop Mauna Kea. 
Phosphine is what planetary scientists refer to as a biomarker, a signature that could be indicative of the presence of extraterrestrial life. Although we are yet to confirm the presence of life on Venus, this discovery is quite possibly the most important scientific discovery in the history of the human race. And phosphine can also be produced by natural processes, so how do we know it's not that kind of thing? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Phosphine can be produced in a variety of different ways, but in nowhere near the concentrations that we are seeing on Venus. And potentially, the origin of this phosphine could be microbial life in the clouds of Venus. That place seems so hostile. How could it even be possible? Well, if this phosphine is the byproduct of microorganisms, then they will be existing in the upper atmosphere of Venus, away from the crushing pressures and searing temperatures of the surface. In the high clouds of Venus, the temperature is equivalent to, say, an average day in Hawaii. And it would be a big deal if they exist, huh? Absolutely. And it's certainly a lot different than what we thought E.T. might look like. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and with all this talk about Mars, scrap that, we're heading to Venus. What's the plans for that? <laughs> right, change of plans. Um, in fact, by fluke, a joint European-Japanese mission called BepiColombo will be making a flyby of Venus and may be able to study it on its way past. And also, of course, NASA and the Russian Space Agency are proposing missions to visit Venus and sample the clouds. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. On the horizon is an October 15th start date to reopen tourism with a pre-testing plan to avoid the 14-day quarantine period. Many whose jobs are tied to the visitor industry are hopeful this will help our economic recovery. The Hawaii Tourism Authority just released a, a timeshare report for the second quarter of this year. We talked to Eric Cloninger of Cloninger & Sims Consulting about the changing landscape during that point in time, exactly who came to stay and how long they stayed. During the second quarter, Occupancy at Hawaii's timeshare resorts was 11.3%, but that compares to a 91% occupancy rate for the same period during 2019. Okay, so considerable drop there. A considerable drop. There were also some very interesting findings about the, the type of occupancy that timeshare had during the quarter. One of them was the composition of who was staying in timeshare resorts during the quarter. So about 99.4% of the occupancy was either timeshare owners or exchangers, meaning timeshare uh, owners staying at the resort where they own their timeshare or people who own a timeshare in another resort somewhere else, either in the state or in the country, who were exchanging that use for, uh, for staying in the timeshare resort. The two other types of occupancy are marketing use and transient use. So marketing use is where the timeshare company will offer a discounted stay at the resort to people who then take a timeshare sales presentation. And last year, that marketing use represented just 0.3% of the occupied room nights. During the same period last year, that was about 9.2% of the occupied room nights. So the the sales and marketing of timeshare has completely shut off. And then the fourth group of occupancy is transient, where they are renting the accommodation similar to a hotel. That was 0.2% of the occupied room nights. Uh, the same period last year, it was 16.8%. The other big change in the occupancy mix was exchangers. So these are people who own a timeshare somewhere else and they were exchanging their use or their points for the stay in a timeshare resort in Hawaii. Last year during the second quarter that accounted for about 18.1 percent of the occupied room nights at timeshare and this year during the second quarter it was 52.2 percent. So what you had was people who had a who own a timeshare somewhere else were exchanging their use for that timeshare or their points and they're cashing them in and going to Hawaii. Wow. So that's interesting. That's notable. That's notable. And then I would also note that there was a, a handful of timeshare resorts that remained in operation. Most of them, based on the data we received, appear to be 
closed, but there were a handful that were open that accounted for the occupancy. Can you say where they were? Were they predominantly Oahu? I can say that there were timeshare, there were properties open on Oahu, Maui County, and Kauai. Uh, Hawaii Island had very, very little occupancy. There were no, none of the large uh, timeshare projects appear to have, either they weren't open or they didn't provide data. Because again, it's a survey. We had 75% participation among the 12,000 timeshare uh, units in the state. What we're, what we're seeing was that uh, with the exchange use that people who own a timeshare somewhere else were choosing Hawaii to, uh, they were coming to Hawaii to stay in a timeshare. The other really interesting finding from the study was the average length of stay. During the second quarter, the average length of stay in a Hawaii timeshare resort was 32.6 days, substantially higher than the same period last year when the average stay was 10.1 days. So what what it appears is that people were booking much longer a much longer stay than typical in a Hawaii timeshare, and that they were spending the 14-day quarantine in their timeshare unit, and that left another two weeks or so uh, for the visitor to enjoy the island in a usual fashion once they had cleared quarantine. That is interesting because if let's say they were also working remotely, they could be here on the islands working through their quarantine, and then get out of isolation and, and have a vacation. The other thing about it is when, when you think about it, timeshare units really do lend themselves for that sort of long stay because uh, we're talking about typically large multi-bedroom units with full kitchens and a, a home-like atmosphere. So that would be more conducive than a hotel room, certainly, for uh, spending the 14-day quarantine period inside. The main takeaway, of course, obviously has to be just the, the huge decrease in, in occupancy, similar to what we've seen in hotels and vacation rentals and, indeed, visitor arrivals in general. Any differences, though, on the the neighbor islands? Overall, uh, it was pretty similar island to island, what we saw, other than I, I previously mentioned Hawaii Island had uh, very little timeshare. So we're talking the, the results that we were seeing were predominantly from Oahu, Maui County, and Kauai. So Hawaii Island appears to have been hit a charter. In fact, the occupancy reported for Hawaii Island was 0.1 percent mm-hmm. for the month. Most of the timeshare now, particularly the, the timeshare from the big brands, is done on a points basis. So they probably only have a limited ability for people to bank their points. I have not heard uh, what the policy is for points that uh, obviously they, there's been very limited ability to redeem timeshare points uh, during during this travel period. So in a typical, uh, the, the systems are set up such that people, timeshares run at very high occupancies, much higher than hotels typically. So there isn't a lot of slack to allow people to bank all of their points, if, to let everyone bank their points and then redeem them at some point in the future. So uh, that'll be interesting to see how how they handle that. But the, the maintenance fees that they pay are going for a lot of things that are that are expenses that they are going to have to be, uh, that the resorts are going to be paying anyway. So our study did find that for the quarter there was a decrease in employment at the timeshare resorts that provided data. Our study showed that during the quarter there was a decrease in employment at Hawaii's timeshare resorts. And uh, we break it down between the resort operations and the timeshare sales and marketing operations. And the sales and marketing functions reported an 11.2% decrease in the number of employees during the quarter. Uh, The operations uh, employment decreased by a much smaller amount, 3.3%. So you do need to still have people who are keeping the mechanical systems functioning and securing the properties and maintaining the amenities. They are the, the resorts, they still have to pay property tax. So that doesn't go away. And the, the, the timeshare owners are, are in effect, you know, the, the owners of the resort. So whereas in a, a typical hotel that's closed down, the, the hotel owner will, have, will still have, still have little or no revenue. They will have some 
um, operational expense to maintain mechanical systems and secure the site, and they are still responsible for property taxes. So in, a ho- in the hotel model, that falls on the hotel owner. In the timeshare industry, uh, those expenses are, are still the responsibility of the timeshare owner. That was Eric Cloninger of Cloninger and Sims Consulting, who put together the snapshot of the timeshare industry during the COVID-19 shutdown. Timeshares accounted for close to a quarter million visitors into our islands uh, last year and had been on track to grow until COVID-19 hit. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we hear about National Public Lands Day, which we mark on Saturday. Come discover the hidden secrets of one of Oahu's oldest neighborhoods. On a programming note for later this week, we will be airing a three-part NPR special starting this Wednesday, Summer of uh, Racial Reckoning. Part one explores the events and people whose deaths have sparked nationwide protests and calls for change. Do you have a story to share? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Connect on social media, and remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.